0: This is the third and final part of my interview with uh, Jerome Bazemar. Please listen to the end. He's going to discuss some of his deployment experiences and life after the military. So you're in for a treat. Later on in your career, after you did switch to Mm -hmm. military where you did have to deploy on quite a few occasions. How many deployments have you had?
1: Yeah, altogether I have nine. I had one... Um, supply deployment, that was 1994, during when Saddam Hussein had a massive army on the the border again. And up until then, I knew nothing about, that's before I even got to special operations. That was 1994, I knew nothing about, uh, deployments or even getting ready, because that, they called me on, let's say, a Friday morning, and I was on airplane going to, uh, Saudi Arabia. The next day, wow! It happened so fast they had to send us. No, they didn't. I remember going to uh, what's it called? IEU individual equipment mm-hmm. issue. Yeah. They had to stay open late for all of us to get um, there's a camo uniforms, boots, hats, t-shirts, all the stuff we needed in one day. I had no idea how fast that the uh, when the military as a whole, the air force, and. In, in, for example, mobilize at a moment's notice. Right. I didn't know how fast we could do that up until then, but I became a believer right. in the past. <laughs> so, yeah, it was Friday, about, that was Friday about 2 o'clock. And Saturday morning at about yeah, Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, I found myself in Atlanta Airport with the rest of the crew, and we were right. flying over. I was nervous. Oh, I was a little A1C. I was nervous and scared. I, you know what? I had one chance to make one phone call. I called home and I couldn't tell him exactly what was going on but all I could do was tell him I was leaving.
0: Right.
1: And yeah, because I was I was I was so scared. You know, I'm a young kid. I was like I wasn't even 20 yet. I was 19 and here I am going off to maybe war again, the war. Not again, but you know I mean? first time, <laughs> Yeah, first yeah. time. Yeah, I was yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's how that went.
0: But it seems like your uh, last appointment was probably your most eventful of your career. Would that be accurate?
1: No, uh, I had one more after 2009, which is like, well, I guess we'll backtrack. The last one I was on was in to Manas Kyrgyzstan. That was 2011. Oh, okay. And I went there to help... Uh, I went to Manas Air Base, but now it's called the Transit Center at Manas. Yeah, um, and we were there just, we were the gateway. Recently Afghanistan. So. Yeah, they the recently air. closed. It. So a lot of the equipment, um, personnel, and supplies went through there. And we also had to foster community partnership. Oh, okay. Because you got to understand, well, a lot of people don't know, but Russia, yeah, Russia has a base, like, maybe four kilometers away from the Transit Center at Manas. And it was a weird time. Because up until then, even after 9-11, when they opened that base, there wasn't any direct dealings with the that, that Russian airbase. They didn't fool with us, we didn't fool with them. Right. And, you know, the Kyrgyz, that's what they're called, they didn't, I guess it's, it's left over from the Cold War. They would talk to us, we would talk to them, then they go talk to the Russians. Playing <laughs> <Right. laughs> and, and, and both sides yeah, sides. yeah, right, that's the best way to say playing both sides. <clears throat> and it got to the point one time, is that Russians overflew our base. Just I don't know why they did it, but they just did so. And we had we we had no fighters there, no military. Yeah, all, yeah, it was all over the way to And they just they were just doing stuff to prove to show that they could. Yeah, just yeah, it's like yeah, yeah, show of force back then. And it was just like weird for us, because all of a sudden everybody like, doo-doo-doo, playing volleyball and whatnot. We were just a fighter aircraft, so everybody come running outside. Well, hey, what's this? And it's a Russian MiG that you're looking at. And this guy just flying over your base, looking at you, as you're looking at him, and it just, it was weird. Like, not weird, yeah, something different. But I guess in that instance, you could say it was the most memorable
0: Okay.
1: One of the most memorable occasions of that last one.
0: Now, before we uh, start a recording, you were talking about your, in lieu of tasking to Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. could you just talk to me a little bit about uh, your deployment there to Mm -hmm. Afghanistan?
1: Sure. Um, As we mentioned earlier, as I mentioned earlier, that was one of the darkest points in my Air Force career. It was in 2009, and... Trust me, I, I love the Air Force. It's, it's been an excellent opportunity, but there's always that one time where you, you never think this is going to happen. You, you didn't know this is really what you signed up to do. And, yeah, I've been to Afghanistan quite a few times before. I served in the, in the Pantry Valley, and true story, I never thought a kid from Dallas, Texas would be, you know, smoking a victory cigar <laughs> with the ambassador from Kyrgyzstan in the Panjshir Valley, like right next, well, not right next to, you, but that's disrespectful, but right down the street, per se, from Masoud's tomb. And we were overlooking the Panjshir Valley smoking a victory cigarette I mean, cigar, excuse me, and just we're having the time of our lives. And I would have never thought we got to that. I never thought I would see that. Right. But that was like 2008. Because back then I was in the, in the deployment cycle. It was six months on, six months off. And I was told by my functional that, hey, I was a hot commodity because I was a PA journalist. And we're, we were highly sought after ever since 9-11. Everyone wanted yeah, to report what yes, they were, were doing. Yeah, it, they needed us. Right. And DOD figured out that Air Force Public Affairs is the best trained to do this mission. We keep sending them out there. But going back to where I was in 2009, I got pulled into one of those in lieu of slash joint expeditionary tasks where you're assigned to the Army. I had worked with Joint Service before going back to even special operations in 94, 95, excuse me, 95, 96. And other times when I was in Afghanistan, like 2008, but here it is in 2009, I'm actually, for lack of a better term, assigned to the Army and it was supposed to be a six month rotation, but I was assigned to the Army as well as NATO. So I had like two or three missions rolled into one. And this is the first time I was actually involved in direct combat. Direct and indirect combat. I dealt with incoming mortars, incoming rockets, sometimes even missiles. I I could deal with that. But one thing that I feared the most was you know, suicide vehicle borne and then IEDs or even regular in the ground IEDs
0: because
1: Yeah, I got body armor. Yeah, I have up armored vehicles, but I can't handle this. You know, from, you know, that's, and that's I don't know if it's a deep city fear of mine, but I guess I could I guess to put it in perspective, I was cool with dealing with an enemy I could see. I can handle that. And yeah, I guess growing up, I'd always fought most of my life, you know, fist fights or whatever. Hey, just get up here, toe to toe, we'll knuckle it out, you know, and best man or go home. We'll walk away as men, you know. I All guess right. the best way to say it. But when it came down to IEDs, I guess what made me mad the most is I felt it was cheating, and two. I, it's tough to just, to I guess talk about it because as men we're not allowed. Well, actually, that's a bad choice of words. Men it's, it's difficult for short Vulnerabilities. But it's tough for me to, as a man to walk around. Hey, look, I am scared of this. Right. Especially in a in a war zone, you can't do that because you're losing. Because if you're always worried about that, they call it a self fulfilling prophecy. If you're worried about that, don't be afraid when it comes to get you and knocks on your door. And for me, it did twice while I was over there, um, me directly. I had just come off a mission. It was August 23rd, 2009. And I had just come off a mission, that was when to go to bed. And right when we came into the compound, you usually have a bunch of, you know, little kids out here trying to sell their trinkets, and whatnot, and they're usually out there. Every time you go in the gate to come out, they run up to you, and just all they want <laughs> is your candy, of course. Or they love chocolate bars, and you know, you know us. We 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 love kids. We love kids, and thinking back, the enemy watched. They knew we knew our our. They knew we were tender, tender hearted towards kids, women, and and younger. And sometimes even older people, the older generation. Right. We're very respectful when it comes down to stuff like that. Right, but. You got to remember that the enemy is watching you as well, so they, they, they watch what you respond to and how to affect you the most. So, <clears throat> that morning in question, we came out that gate, and you leave, and you look to the left, and you come to that tirade of kids smiling, laughing, and bringing their little bracelets and stuff to you. That morning, they weren't there. And I, had, I remember talking radioing in to, hey, something's wrong. There's nobody out here you know what I mean, and the person that I was escorting was in such a hurry to go, to get to where they need to get to, they, I don't care, press, and they're like, look, hold on, something's not right, and we start going to try to back the, the convoy up, and we're all human, and some people believe and call it what intuition, sixth sense, whatever you want to call it, God-given ability, but you know... In your heart of hearts, something is not right. right, and you start trying to correct the situation. But you have some people who are positions of authority who totally <laughs> choose to ignore what's going on. And I'm not slamming because I understand you got to do your job. So we pressed, you know, and drove, did the mission. And, and I'm not gonna lie, I was, I was, I was mad. And some words of exchange between me and the. <laughs> since it became a job to me. We didn't even call people people anymore. it wasn't me, Adrian, or Bobby, you were just the package. That's what we called you. Or we had to take, you know, I had to take idiot to point A to point B. That's what we called you. You have to make yourself, you need something to hold on to, I guess. Because, you know, the job is just crappy. I'm doing this day in, day out. I'm tired. I'm getting, you know, awake 24 hours a day, any given time. These fools are calling me because... Leadership has figured out that Bobby, Agent, and me are the best at what we do. I'm sorry to say, yeah, we're a ragtag outfit from three different services, but we were the ones people were going to because...
0: Well, you had the consistency, yeah. Yeah. the Army just come in and go. And,
1: they come and go, and they do things differently, and I guess they figured out we we behaved like we had some sense. <laughs> <laughs> and we were talking to them. And we would try to reason, to look, you don't want to do this because this what can you know, this is what can happen. And it got so good between Bobby me and Adrian that we didn't even have to talk anymore because we had gotten that good If let's say, we were out on a mission, and I can tell by how the attitude he held his vehicle, I knew it was way he was going to turn. Right. And of course, yeah, we would discuss the route and say, hey, look, if something goes wrong, we're going to go down a different route, and this is the rally point, and if we get separated... This is what we're gonna do and you already have that ingrained in you. So we didn't have to we barely talked.
0: So on this day when y'all went yeah. out and he decided to go ahead, even though you sensed danger or mm-hmm. what happened yeah. next.
1: Um, thank God nothing happened on that particular mission. However, when we got back home and bedded down the vehicles, you know, gave each other pound and all right man, I see you at child later. And Adrian went to work and I went to bed. You know, I had been up all night. They didn't work pretty much days. We did our debrief and then like I said we separated ways and I think I got to bed and I knew I needed to be back up and on shift again at noon. So I'd say about nine o'clock that morning. Was, yeah, when that bomb came that suicide bomber came through the front gate and blew up the Looking backwards they determined that they that dude had about close to nine hundred pounds of homemade oh explosives in his vehicle. And we can talk about it because you can actually find this stuff on open source and on the internet. They didn't find him. All they found was the tips of his fingertips.
0: That's all
1: they found. There was so much explosive in that vehicle that he actually... and you see them on the highway, they're called Jersey Barriers. Yes. He had actually blown one of those things 100 feet down the street. The engine block was about 50 feet down the street. That's easily, what, 800, 900 pounds. Um, he blew all the windows out. Of the embassy down the street, he blew all the. It was so close to the Ministry of the Interior that building was de- it was uh, condemned. It cracked the foundation. Oh my god! It knocked down like the t-walls. Blew up, blew our gates with smithereens. It tore up the female dorms, and thank God that no one was. Everyone was at work at the time. All the and that dorm was was condemned as well. And I think the most disturbing thing. Is thank God no one died in that incident, but the sheer destruction of what a suicide uh, vehicle-borne IED can do, it, it just permanently imprints that in your mind. And the one thing that disturbed me the most is some of the photos. Just, this is what also, also hurts, because we can talk about this now that it's been a few years, and it took me a while to, you know, I had to talk Chaplains and other professionals right. would try to get me back on track. Cause I was messed up mentally. This is a lot of stuff to, to
0: process. Right. You know what yeah. I mean?
1: But where I was going is, what disturbs me the most when you start seeing all the photos and and investigations and they call it counter IED. Mm-hmm. That office comes down and then you have to describe. You know, give your rendition of what happened, and that's when it really starts affecting you. You start walking through the the steps of this process. This is me. This is what happened. Yes, this is us on our convoy. I reported that I saw this. This is still what happened. And it seemed like you were the one lone voice in the wilderness and yelling, saying, hey, something's wrong. And just in the big machine, so to speak, of trying to get the mission done, it didn't. I don't know if the info got up fast enough or what. But
0: you think the problem with the turnover, the constant turnover, cause that you're always relearning the I lessons know. you already knew because you were there. The whole,
1: exactly. The like, hey, and <laughs> to keep yourself from getting in trouble. You can't run up and be like, "Hey, dummy! I said <laughs> you can't do that," and keep your job. Yeah, you every, said you did, your you're right. My, you know what I mean? Yeah. You, I'm sorry. You said you did
0: 186 missions. Yeah, right? I had
1: 100. I think I left at 189. Oh, 89. Yeah. But it's, it's on my medal citation but it's 189 combat missions wow. outside, outside the wire, which is about easily twice the amount of what normal people have in a year.
0: Yeah. So, having said you uh, just recently retired. How many years did you serve?
1: That'd be 22 years and 28 days. Wow. And then it's all said and done on December 31st. That's great. Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, just ask you, you know, what what do you think is next for you? How uh, your retiree?
1: First, I'm going to take some time off, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I have a daughter in Florida that I need to rebuild some bridges with. Cause um, it's been, she said something earlier part of you know, right around December last year, had struck a chord with me. I was talking about hey, um, when I retire, we'll spend some time and yada yada yada, mm-hmm. and she said. It wasn't necessarily why now, but she was like, "It's more so like, hey, you were never there for me." Mm-hmm. And at first, I wanted to get mad, right? I'm like, "What? That bedroom sleep, bedroom set you sleep on every yeah. day? I bought that. The braces yeah. you just got taken off? We bought yeah. that. What the heck? You? know your Right." <laughs> yeah. And I think about it, said, so "You know what? You're right. Because I've always, you know, been deployed. I've always been stationed overseas. I've always been." Where? You know, stationed in other places, right? So I had, I had apologized. I said, you know what, you're, you're right, and that that within a week I had filed, not filed, yeah, pretty much had had put the push the button to retire. Okay. So I know I needed to go while well, she's still young. Right. I knew I needed to go fix that relationship. Right. Yep. That's one of the main reasons why I chose to retire now.
0: Okay. So is there uh, anything to say as far as? Life lessons that you've learned from your time, and other things that are going to carry on with you, or that you might impart to
1: other people. It's- That's true. You know, funny thing is, is, is I was raised that you really didn't toot your own horn. You usually try to make the people around you better. Just even when I was out there being stupid and making my mistakes. <laughs> I was always tell people, look, the same thing my dad said. So, you know, you're, you're a kid and you're growing up, and you always walk up to your mom and dad and be like, you know, dad, mom, I want to be just like you when I grow up. And you know, dad nodded his head, looked at me, goes, you know what? I want you to be like me. I want you to be better than me. I never really thought about that till I joined, till I joined myself.
0: Right.
1: And every time I made a career decision, I'd always a big career decision. You know, you know, going up for airman of the Month, you don't need to call home for that. So right. Ignorant that joining honor guard, you need to call. Home. But, but it came down to, hey, look, Dad, I've gone this far in special operations. You know, I want to go all the way in and become, you know, full full fledged tacky. What do you think about it? And the funny true story is, my dad, he goes, yeah. I said, what do you get? I said, well, Dad, you know, I get to wear the beret with the little... Tacky flash, a little skull and lightning bolt and all this stuff. I get a tattoo, I get, oh, I'm sorry, that was out loud. And I get to get a tattoo and I get to get all this other. And I started going through the whole gamut of what I get. My um, dad, he listened, you know, very tenderly. And at the end, when I got done with my little sales pitch, that they had just, the recruiter had just given me, he was like, yeah, it's wrong, that's good, but um, what are you going to do when you retire? And I was like, uh... Exactly. I had no answer. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like, I think you might want to find something else. And I looked at, went back to, yeah, I went back to, what's it called? Career enhancement, not Career Enhancements, but back then where you can, yeah, what it was called back then. The cross Training Office, I guess. Retraining. Oh, yeah, yeah retrain Retraining. There you go. Yeah. Went to the retraining office and I was looking... I, I borrowed a little book where you can go through all the FSEs and find out what openings were open. Yeah, all the specialty codes yeah. for them. And I had looked at broadcasting. I wanted to become a broadcaster, and hence the voice. I wanted to become a broadcaster, and I did the an audition and everything else. And I didn't get a letter back from the mail. These people said I had failed. The broadcasting because you had to get in there, and read the script, and everything. And then people told me I, I was heated. Yeah, you
0: have a good voice. For yeah, the exactly. I said,
1: what? What? This is CNN, <laughs> and I was ready. You know? right. They told me my voice sucked, so I was hurt. So you know what? Let me try this again. So I did another audition, and I don't know exactly what happened, but I didn't hear anything back. And meanwhile, the cross training, my cross training window is getting smaller and smaller, and the jobs. You know, or getting the job listing, so it's either broadcasting or PA. And since I heard nothing, heard nothing back from broadcasting, I had to get the H C double hockey sticks out of supply. Right. Because we had like 400 people they were trying to get rid of because they were okay. merging supply With and trans. And, yeah, it would become okay. right LRS. I didn't want any part of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Back in the day, supply of trans, we hated each other. Yeah, I know. Right? We did yeah. and funny when you peel back all the layers, we did the same job yes. pretty much. But Air Force as a whole figure that out. But still I didn't want to be that moniker and we had some. Just trans. like the security forces yeah. in the but Yeah, Lawrence. Uh, law yeah, they didn't right. yeah, they didn't want nothing to do with each other in the yes, beginning. But yeah. when you peel back the layers, we do the same thing. All right. So if you have your pretty boy side and you excuse me <laughs> that's a bad choice of words, I mean, now you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Gender not gender neutral, but whatever. You have your 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 show side, and right. then you have the in the weeds, you know, wheels rubber on meets the road side. They get more, they get a little more dirty and involved yeah. with more things. I remember, yeah, the le guy, yeah, guys, you know, gender neutral term yeah, for me.
0: I was a attorney manager in the cops <laughs> for a couple
1: of years. You had they ran around in, in blues, ran around in little pretty cop cars, and did what they needed to do, and you had just the security forces guys which again is a gender neutral term, come in dirty, sweaty, stinky, yeah. and them big old, you know, Humvees, and up-armor, up-armored, one of them things called. They're up-armored Humvees. Yeah, the peacekeeper. That was a Miami, we had all-metal. Yeah, had them all-metal yeah. ones. Back in the day. Yeah, the back in the day, hunks of metal. Personnel <laughs> carriers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those things. And same thing with LRS. You had, we had the people who worked in the office who worked in, you know, service dress for blues every day. And you had us in the warehouse. We ran around in BDUs. I remember, I'm getting long-winded again, I remember I would I would shine my boots and iron my uniform every day. When I walked in in the morning at 7.30, I had mirror-polished boots, creases in my uniform, and by the time the end of the day is over, I'm dirty, dusty. And I did this every day. And, yeah, it grinded on me sometimes, but I was happy with it. Going back, to like I said, that's what my dad taught me. He said, piece of advice he gave me before I joined is, one, don't ask anybody to do anything you're not willing to do yourself. And two, you know, the only time you look down on somebody is when you help them you pick them up. That's good. That even good worked advice. when I was playing football and everything. Yeah, yeah. You make a tackle, knock the hell out of somebody, be like, all right, you pick them up, <laughs> That's a good game, baby, get yeah. and You know, that's what you do. Right. That's always what I was taught. Wow. So, coming into the military, I brought that those aspects into this side of the gate as well. And it was funny, at my retirement ceremony yesterday, when they started walking down my Air Force history, if you will, and you kept hearing things like this guy would go after the stragglers, this guy would come up the ones lagging behind, or people who dealing with big life-adversarial, life-changing events, I, would, I was always there to help. And that was thanks to my dad, the way I was raised, and and no other way to say it. But all I can say is now I'm, I'm an ordained minister. But looking backwards now to this point, all I can say was the main reason I did it, and I not even know it till now, was God gave his son named Jesus, who did the same thing for me when I was left there running around losing my mind and acting stupid. He came to get me. So that's how I repay him as I go get others you know, for the same reason. There you go. <laughs> we can go back. to the oh, one story yeah. you
0: told me before, but I don't
1: know. I didn't know that long. I'm <laughs> sorry. Uh,
0: yeah. you, were, you were talking about uh, the time you were driving with your dad. And mm-hmm. You were back stateside and you had a
1: Oh, kind yeah. Of class okay. Back. Yeah, ready to relive that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, <clears throat> I'm third generation military. My grandfather on my dad's side was part of, he fought in World War II. He was part of the, the famed Red Ball Express, Oh, great! and I forgot to mention that earlier. But yeah, he was part Thank of the Red you. Ball Express, and around 92, yeah, President Clinton was in office, and they were part of an all-black regiment that never got, they got passed over for medals, never got formally recognized, but you know, President Clinton invited him and the rest of the surviving members of the Red Ball Express up to the White House. Yeah and bought them all brand-new uniforms, and gave them all the medals and decorations that they didn't get from World War II. Right. And a big public apology. That yeah, I've actually done this. some research on that for the,
0: for the podcast.
1: And it was just amazing to see my granddaddy, who had just had his, his leg amputated from uh, diabetes, standing up there so proud. A little old man, little old man. <laughs> <laughs> but he was standing up there so proud, standing at attention on crutches. Wow. You know, Eyes, you know, welling up with tears because he was just so proud. You know what I mean? And not even a few years after that, he passed away and he had a full, full military honors funeral. And on one hand, you you wanted to be sad because that was granddaddy who just passed away. But, you know, you were happy because I guess it was icing of the cake. Because he kept, he didn't, he was just like my dad it really didn't talk about didn't really talk about type of stuff. Right. We're not ones who really toot your own horn unless we're telling jokes. <laughs> <laughs> but when it comes down to what I did as far as my accomplishments in the military, it's it's hard for any of us to do that because we're always taught to be so humble.
0: And that's part of the reason why I do this, because
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's a thousand stories out there mm-hmm. that need to be told but the people don't really want to tell but it, it is beneficial right. for the younger generations to hear people are recognized, and in particular my focus is on, you know, black Americans,
1: the right. we made that have been ignored. Mm-hmm. So yeah, not I to try and do my it. little
0: part to capture that. <laughs> and, you
1: know. But I'm sorry, to answer your question, as yeah. for me is, I was coming back in, in 2009, and over six months time I had 187, maybe 189 combat missions outside the wire, and I become... I don't want to say condition, that's a bad choice, a word, but you have your, your your triggers, that's what they're called. When you're used to driving a certain way to protect your life or the lives of others in Afghanistan, they're called choke points, and that's when you're boxed in and you can't go anywhere. But they, I do know the way you're trained in wartime or combat, if you're in a convoy, you Knock the pee out of that vehicle in front of you to do what you need to do to get out of that situation. Right. But so they're trying to to steer you one way because nine times out of ten there's an ambush or an assault waiting for you up this street. It's, they're trying to trying to choke point you to get you to drive a certain direction so they can take you out. So you're trying to hold on. Something wrong. I need to back up or go somewhere else. There's something not right up this road. And I had gotten in combat mode and had been operating in that so long that it was tough you to decompress and come back home fully if you will and I remember I was at a red light it was rush hour traffic and I was in my own vehicle and it was just me and my dad and here I am at a red light trying to turn right and I just had a flashback moment and just lost it temporarily because I had been going so long on pure adrenaline and going so long on in a combat environment, that I forgot where I was. And I mean, all I know is I was bottled in, and there was nothing I can do. And I, I just that that fear of something bad is about to happen It overtaken me. You know, I was, and next thing you know, I was over gripping the steering wheel and had veins coming up on the side of my neck because I'm. I guess my body and my mind were fighting. <laughs> My body was trying to say, oh, I need to do something to get the hell out of the situation. My mind was trying to tell me that, hey, look, you're home. You're right. back home in Texas. And the wires were crossing. You know what I, mean? it, 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 yeah, I really can't put it in, into a better perspective than that. But next thing you know, all I remember, my dad reaching over and grabbing my forearm. And he was like, hey, 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 son. Hey, hey, where are you? And, and it was weird because it, it took me, it seemed like an eternity. And I know it had to be within a moment of seconds, but it seemed like a turning for me to to figure out that oh yeah okay yeah 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 I am home okay okay okay, yeah. and we were my dad and I were supposed to go somewhere. I uh, don't know if we were going to the corner store. I don't exactly remember where we were going, but he said, "Hey, let's go pull over here and, and, and have a conversation." We sat down and we started talking. With my, you know, my dad is a Vietnam vet. He was, did twenty years in the Air Force too. And he was stationed at Benoit Air Base. And I remember we would always ask him, you know, what combat was like, and he never would talk about it, you know. Until that day, I guess he realized, you know, what was going on. And that morning, we actually pulled over, we, we were talking, and he was like, you know what, y'all had it different than we did. When I came back to the States from Afghanistan, every time, no matter what time of day it was, they always had some old veterans or people who would support our troops. Folks, they'd be waiting for you soon we land at BWY and they'd be like, no matter if it's 2 in the morning or 2 in the afternoon, there was always a giant crowd. And they always pretty much drive you to tears because, they were, you know, you were getting emotional,
0: but it
1: was cool that somebody cared. And the one thing that always got me was the old guy in his wheelchair. uh, It was two in the morning he was out there. This old guy with shaky hands stood up, trembling arms, and hugged me with all he had. Because he had been there. Had a little VFW hat on and everything, and it meant a lot. Okay. Yeah, flashing forward to yeah, flashing forward to me and my dad sitting there talking. As he? You know, he explained that you know, a lot of stuff that he didn't get that when they came home from Vietnam. A lot of them were spit on, or a lot of them were just talked about like dogs, called baby killers. There was no support like we do now, and. He reached over and he was like, "You know what? A lot of people don't understand what it's like to say goodbye to a friend that you lost to an enemy engagement." And I lost some when I was over there. I had Forty people. I lost sixteen to uh, IEDs and one to suicide. I can deal with IEDs. The one thing that tore me up the most was with the suicide. Because I had just seen that dude, you know, that morning going to the d And I didn't know at the time until you, you looked backwards, but he had already made a decision. Right. And every time I saw him, you know, he was always had that little stank look on his face. You know, one of those looks like you just, you just this job sucks, you know, the regular thing. We all right. had, we all did that, because it, it, it's not easy. You're away from your family, you're... In a country that you think inside of yourself, what the hell am I here for? They don't even care But we're here trying to help them. The elections are coming up. People are working 18, 19-hour days. It was a big grind. But when I saw him this particular morning, he had already made a decision. And I didn't know until you, you peel back the layers. But he was smiling, high-fiving people. And I should have noticed. Because every time I see him, he always had a stank look on his face, say, for this morning, he old go ear-to-ear grin. Yeah. And then, you know, as I'm eating breakfast, which was lunch, really, <laughs> or on the time schedule, he yeah. walked walk right in that office and killed himself in front of about six, seven people in that office. Oh, okay. yeah. And that type of stuff is what bothers you the most. And flashing, you know, to my dad's story, after he said, you know, A lot of people, you know, the American populace wasn't behind the Vietnam War. Right. My dad told me, flashing forward to where I was going, my dad told me a lot of people don't understand what it's like to bury, you know, a friend that should lose the combat. And that's when he told me that one day they got overrun and the enemy started walking in mortar rounds. And he remembers talking to his friend and said, hey dude, we need to go to the foxhole yeah. for the, you know, the bomb shelter now. Yeah. And the dude froze. Was by the buddy, whatever, he froze for like two seconds. And my dad turned around and said, hey man, we need to, and he didn't even finish his sentence before he got blown up. I mean, the mortar round landed like almost on him. And you know, knocked my dad like maybe 20 feet away. You know, and he was just like, wow. And like I said, up until that point, we had never talked about they would talk about it. And they would talk about combat. And my dad, he would talk about... He, that was the first time we actually talked about direct engagement. he mm-hmm. talked talk about funny stuff.
0: Right.
1: Like when his front teeth got knocked out by radio or... <laughs> when he was making chow one night. They had different types of MREs. Like right. We had it's we C-Rats had, Yeah, the had, they had C-Rats where right. he actually had to cook them over like a controlled flame or something. He said something. He said one time he was making scrambled eggs because you can same thing we do now you can make a, a secret menu with MREs yeah. he was doing that he, had, he was cooking like eggs in, in a rat can and something happened where they got called away on a mission and I guess my dad forgot that they were in the hut and <laughs> eggs were in the, in the hut cooking and they were like working on the fuel burn or something and like maybe four hours later I guess oh. that can they got too hot <laughs> and just blew up inside the office and he was like
0: kaboom
1: he didn't know what was going on. So everybody, of course, instantly <laughs> yeah. hits the deck. Yeah. And the, the siren didn't go off. So if I look around, what the hell is going on? So they opened the door to the office. It just <laughs> everywhere on the wall. And, and my dad was like, a, I think an A1C at the time. And oh. His supervisor leg like, up. But like, you know what you're going to be doing the next thing. Yeah. So we had to clean up all that mess.
0: So, that's about it. Well, thank you again. This has been just very good. Thank you for sharing the-
1: Oh, no problem. Everything you had with I us. can't apologize for getting emotional. I was in the, hey, in the moment, so yeah.
0: It's emotional
1: events, mm-hmm. I understand. When you start walking through all this stuff and you, <laughs> yeah, yeah replaying it, I forgot that's about that. That's why I'm that. grateful that you're even willing yeah.
0: to, to talk about it.
1: Um, I but, forgot about that. Wow. Yeah. So, thank you for
0: your service, too. Yes, sir. And uh, we'll have this up shortly. Thank you. That concludes my interview with Jerome Bazemar, and I hope it was as uh, interesting for you as it was for me and educational. I would encourage you to please come on out to our site, blackvalor.net, and leave some comments on the forums. You can send me an email at blackvalor1010 at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, and we have a Twitter page if you'd like to subscribe there. But that is it for now. Next week, I will be discussing the 477th Bomb Group. See you then.